Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Mike Polovacci, who's a man we respect and who's taught us how to listen to the voice of the Spirit, has a very um, deep uh, way of dealing with things. If you hear God and you think it's God, say it. If you're wrong, no one dies. So that's kind of where we're at. My name's Nick. Um, I'm glad to be preaching. We are in our God at Work series. Um, and most of the time at Mercy Commons, if you're a visitor, we go through a book of the Bible. In summer, what we do is we uh, hit some topical series, and this is our God at Work series. Last week, I spoke about our secondary calling, that our vocation or our job was our secondary calling. And then in order to secure our secondary calling, we need to ensure that it flows from our primary call, which is to be with God. That we aren't just given an assignment by God, but that we are actually God's assignment, that God is at work in our work. Um, Paul reminds the Ephesian church that he says to them, instead, we are God's accomplishment, workmanship, poem, work of art. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be in the way in which we live our lives. Now, David Brooks, Matt and I were talking about this, wrote a book in 2015 called The Road to Character because he was concerned about the narcissistic trajectory of our society in 2015, seven years ago. Has not got better, okay? Um, but what he talks about is he talks about these two virtues, and he talks about what he calls the resume virtue and the eulogy virtue. And he talks about the resume virtue, which are the things that we usually put in our resume, our degrees, our accomplishments, our awards, our, our special skills, the positions you've had, and, and the competency that you could bring to this organization, why you should be hired, why you are better than the other person who is applying for the job. A eulogy virtues are those virtues that we should be hearing at eulogies when someone has passed away. These are virtues like honesty, kindness, their impact on the people around them, whether they were brave or faithful, generous. How many of you have been to a funeral where you get a little awkward because all that you're hearing are resume virtues? You're, you're hearing about the fact that this guy achieved this or this woman was the CEO of that company, and you're not actually hearing these eulogy virtues. And... Part of what I want to speak about this morning is the, is the fact that God is at work in our work, ensuring that we are forming eulogy virtues and not resume virtues. It's precisely because God doesn't need us that His focus is not on our output for Him, but His focus is on our shaping by Him. His focus is not on our output for Him, but on our shaping by Him. He is at work in your work, in your inner life. I want you to picture two kids and they're building a sandcastle. And as a parent, if you have two kids building a sandcastle, you have very low expectations, right? Your expectations are what? 
No injury, right? No injury is the first expectation. You don't want one of them to hit the other one uh, with a shovel. You don't want anyone throwing sand in anyone's face. You actually, at the end of it, are more concerned about whether they've learned to share, whether they've learned to honor one another, rather than the sandcastle. And so God is more committed to our eulogy virtues or our character than to our resume virtues or our competence. In short, God uses work to sanctify us. And there can probably be no better example of work as a builder of inner virtue than Joseph in the book of Genesis. In Psalm 105, the psalmist reminds us about what happened with Joseph, and I'm reading out of the ESV here. It says, when he summoned a famine, this is God, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he said had come to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The rulers of the people set him free and made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. So in order to kind of understand this, we need a little bit of background. So I'm going to hit the high points of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis from chapters 38 to 50. Joseph was the son of Jacob, one of the, one of the 12 sons, which we now know as the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, he was Jacob's favorite son, and he was given a coat to prove it. And we'll get through how really successful that was a little bit later. Um, but what happened was, because of some things that Joseph did, and also in the context of the sovereignty of God, he was sold into slavery in Egypt. Um, he joined the household of Potiphar. And then, through a series of events that were not his fault, he ended up in prison. It was in prison where Joseph began to interpret, to have the ability to interpret dreams. Now, before Joseph was in prison, he had the ability to dream. It was only once he was in prison that he had the ability to interpret dreams. It was while he was in prison that Pharaoh had this dream, which is what this section of Scripture is talking about, that there would be a famine in the land of Egypt. And this famine would last for seven years. But there would be seven fat years, or seven years of abundance, uh, that would precede this famine. And so as he interprets this dream, Joseph tells the Pharaoh that what he is supposed to do is supposed to prepare so that Egypt can be well stocked during the time of famine. And he does that. He's put in charge. He becomes the second in command um, of the whole Egyptian nation, which at that time was the then known world, most of it. Um, and it comes to pass just as he said. Now the brothers that had sold him into slavery and are living somewhere else are also dealing with this famine. And it's at that moment that they come to Egypt looking for grain, to be able to purchase grain, because there's only Egypt, there's only grain in Egypt. And it's at that moment where they recognize that the brother they, they, that they sold into slavery is actually Joseph. Joseph, instead of being, how do you like me now? Um, and instead of exerting his authority, turns around with humility and love and actually helps his family, purchases grain, they come back, they move to Egypt, and they multiply. And as the scripture says, they become very fruitful. They become stronger than their foes, which then again leads to the need of another rescuer in Moses. 
where the Israelites had become more numerous than the Egyptians, and so God has to send Moses as the Redeemer. Now, part of the challenge with all of this is you, you kind of are wondering, like, why would God send this famine? It seems a little harsh. Verse 16, he's behind the famine, but he's preparing Joseph and the rest of the nation of Israel for a rescue. It's hard for us to grasp that God is not unconcerned with what this is doing to an individual, but he also has a much longer view of this. Now look, let's be honest, this is hard. We are temporal human beings. We are lucky if we have 80 years here on the planet God is someone that is not bound by time. So I get it. When we're saying to God, God, this is taking a long time, God answers, I don't know what time is. So there, there is this, this disconnect between God seeing the long view and what it is that he wants to create in us and through us and how long it is taking. And it leads us to this problem where we, if we find it difficult to see God at work in our work. In fact, sometimes he seems completely absent. And so the first question I want to answer this morning is, how can I find God at work in my work? Well, the first thing, and this is pretty simple, is you need to separate your own stupidity from God's shaping and persecution. Not God persecuting you, but the world persecuting you. You need to be able to separate your own stupidity from God's shaping or persecution. I'll give you an example of my own stupidity. I was 22 years old, I had a job as a junior project manager. And Len Schlebiwa, who uh, was, he was like the man. Uh, he was like, you know, stories have been told about people and now you get to ride with him. And I was riding with Len. And Len was telling me stories about the fact that they were doing this project in South Africa and some of the workers came and barricaded them in because they hadn't been paid. And so they, they were kidnapped and taken hostage until they managed to get the money to pay the workers. And I'm listening to this and I'm so excited. And so um, I just want to be his friend. I want to learn from him. I want him to mentor me. And so we're sitting there and then he says, stay in the car. I'm going to go up and grab some documentation from this government building and I'm going to come back down. And he leaves his cell phone in the car next to me. And so I pick up his cell phone. I know, I'm 22, right? I know, people are doing this, you know? So not only do I pick up his cell phone, but it's, it's locked. It has a passcode, you know? Even back then, those old flip phones, they had passcodes, right? It was an old flip phone. And I'm like, I wonder what his passcode is. So, like, I try one. It doesn't work. I still to this day don't know what I was going to achieve by unlocking his phone. I still don't know why I did it. I try the third one. I mean the second one. Nope, that didn't unlock it. I try a third one and then it says, your phone is now locked. And I'm like, oh shoot. So I put the phone down. Len comes back and he gets in the car and he says, hey, won't you hand me my phone? And so I hand him the phone and he's like, what the heck happened? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, my phone is locked. What happened? Did you mess with my phone? I'm like, no. Bold-faced lie. Total lie. Anyway, two thanks, babe. To his credit, to his credit, Len never said anything about that moment again. I will say this, though. It definitely affected my relationship with him. It definitely affected his ability to trust me. That was my own stupidity. 
There was another time when I was working in a place called Kumon, and the reason I was hired to work there was because it was a Jewish organization, and I'm not Jewish, so I was hired to work on Friday afternoons and Saturdays, and my job was to basically close down the center and have the center open on, on Saturdays. And so I went to Jack and I said to him, hey, on Wednesday, I'd like to leave like maybe 15 minutes early. There's a prayer meeting um, at my church. And so he says to me, do you have to go? So I'm like, well, no, I don't have to go. I want to go. He says, well, then no. So I'm like, oh, shoot, I should have used kind of the Jewish paradigm of this is something I have to do in the context of my faith. If I had said I have to do something, then he would have felt obligated to let me go. So I said, no, this is where I'd learned from not bald-faced lying and saying, no, I didn't do your passcode, where I said the truth, and I said, no, I don't have to go, and I didn't get to go to the prayer meeting. There are times in our lives where... Our job becomes incredibly difficult because of our own stupidity and immaturity, or because we are persecuted for values and beliefs that we hold, or simply because, like we discussed last week, work is hard. Like life, work is difficult. You look at Joseph, you'll find all of these things at work in his life. You, you look at his own stupidity, and this is, I mean, I don't have time to detail all of these, but just trust me, and if you want to read them, you can go back. First thing. He was clearly the favorite, right? Most of this is his dad's fault. You're given this cool kind of coat that shows you that you're better than everyone else. You do have the choice to not wear it, but anyway, he wore it. The second thing is he's a snitch. He snitches on his brother, okay? You know that saying? Snitches get stitches, right? He got way more than stitches. Okay. He also was really bad at the family business. He was a terrible herder which meant that he didn't go out with the guys. And then when um, Jacob tells him to go find his brothers, this is the best, he gets lost, okay? How good a herder could you be if you get lost? He asks someone, hey, do you know where my brothers are? And he has to tell them where they are. He's hated by his brothers, not just because he has this dream, and the dream that he has is that his brothers are bowing down to him. So you have this dream, then what you do is you go tell your brothers this dream. Like, what are you expecting is going to happen? Then he has another dream. So this doesn't go well, right? Then he has another dream that not only his brothers are bowing down to him, but his father and his mother are bowing down to him. Now, had, have you learned maybe from the first dream? Should you maybe not tell someone about the second dream? He didn't learn. He told his dad and the rest of the people about the second dream. So he, here he is. Incompetent, unwise, arrogant, and oblivious to how others are perceiving him. Yet at the end of the story, all of these characteristics are completely unended when Joseph stands next to the Pharaoh and welcomes his brother as a proficient, wise, humble, self and other aware man. God has shaped Joseph. Now there was also persecution. We know that he was in Potiphar's household once he was sold from, um, from the pit into the, uh, into the slave traders. The slave traders gave him to Potiphar's household, and he was in Potiphar's household, and Potiphar's wife made moves on him, said, come lie with me. And so he rejected, and he rejected, and he said, no, this is not good, this is not right. And then eventually, 
um, his, uh, his boss's wife grabs his cloak and now has his cloak and accuses him of sexual assault. And she has the proof. She has the cloak. And so now, in terms of these false accusations, he's not only demoted, but he's put into prison. Now, how can God shape us by using the pits and prisons of our job? I think the first thing that we see is that it reinvigorates our compassion. The pits and prisons of our job reinvigorate our compassion. Genesis 40, verse 7, this is while Joseph is in prison, he asks Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So this is what had happened. He's in prison and there's a baker and the wine kind of the, the cupbearer or some, some call them the butler because I guess it rhymes with baker and butler. Let's go with baker and butler. It sounds better. So the baker and butler are in there and they're also in prison. Now, I don't know why they're in prison. Obviously, a really bad meal, okay? Why else would the baker and the butler be in prison? And so Pharaoh has the power to kind of imprison them. Now, understand this. Remember, Joseph had absolutely no self-awareness and no awareness of others when he wasn't in the prison. Now he's in the prison. What does he do? He says, what's the matter, guys? What's going on? He recognizes that there is something happening with someone that is not himself. He's not allowing self-pity to prevent him from seeing an opportunity to exercise compassion on behalf of someone else. Imagine he was just sitting there nursing and rehearsing the unfairness of what had happened, because this is how it could have happened. Guys, why are you down here? Well, you know, I served the Pharaoh a cup of wine that was sour. Uh, well, I baked uh, some bread that wasn't good. Oh, that's so unfair. So I can't believe this. You want to know why I'm here? It's so unfair. She accused me of sexual assault, and I'm not even, I didn't even do anything. I ran away. I did the right thing. Instead of nursing and rehearsing his hurts, he grew in his ability to see that someone else was in pain and to be able to offer compassion. I think one of the things that we need to look at in the context of our workplace is that self-pity often obscures our opportunity to exercise compassion on behalf of others. When we're so focused on the wrongs that have been done to us, we aren't able to see the face of someone else who we could minister to and bring glory to God. Because ultimately, that's what he says. Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. He's finding a way to bring glory to God. God is shaping him. God is moving him. I want to say, how many of us look, not for the person with a sad face, but for the person that could advance our career? So we're looking for the person that has the ability to make decisions about our advancement. We're looking for that person. We're not looking for some little pleb that we can offer kindness to. And maybe that's what we should be looking for. Maybe we approach work with the ability to say, God, this morning... I want to serve people without an ulterior motive, and I want to look for an opportunity, as I said last week, to offer some kind of creative service to someone that is downcast. So pits and prisons reinvigorate our compassion for other people. They also reveal hidden competencies. It's uh, interesting, I, my, my wife is a doula, 
And I said, have you seen people just rise to the occasion? You know, like when you thought, oh, I don't know how this is going to go, but then you are completely surprised. And she said, yeah, there was this one man who, now bear with me, I know men don't have babies, you'll see, okay? There was this one man who got like super nauseous and was going to faint at his wife's first ultrasound, okay? And so Corin's like, whoa, this is not going to go well, you know what I mean? If he is going to faint at the ultrasound, which is really not that big a deal, I don't know how he's going to do here. But she said, it was amazing, like something overtook him, and something, it, it just raised his courage, and he knew that he was there for her, and something rose up in him, and there was this hidden competency that enabled him to stand there and say, I am here for this, and she was amazed at what he was able to do. It's interesting that Joseph, Joseph in all three of these situations, is given leadership, in part of his house, he's given leadership. In the prison, he's given leadership. And in Pharaoh's court, he's given leadership. But it's only in prison where his ability to interpret the dreams actually has its genesis. We know that he could dream before, but it's only in prison where he had the ability to interpret dreams. I would say that his prison was necessary in order to reveal this hidden competence of what dreams meant. He also realizes that it's not all about him, that God is the interpreter of the dreams and that his role is to put himself in a situation where he can bring glory to God. The question I want to ask you is what hidden gift or what higher level of competency is God trying to reveal to you through a difficult situation at work? In what area are you able to step into something you didn't think you could step into because life is difficult at work. So he reveals hidden competence. He also reorients our confidence. So Joseph tells the baker and the butler the interpretation of the dream. Now for the baker, good news. In three days, you'll be released. You'll receive your position back. For the butler, real bad news. In three days, you're going to be executed. Okay, I wonder how that conversation went. Anyway, Genesis 40, verse 14, he says, only, this is Joseph speaking, he says, only remember me, he's talking to the baker, when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so to get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. Oh, man, I was like, when I read this, I was like, Bro, you almost had it, and now you're kind of regressing back into this whole thing. But I did nothing wrong, and I'm here because of the stupidity and jealousy of others. You know, this gives us hope. It gives me hope. It gives me hope that God will use me even though I rise and fall in the context of my emotions and situations. That He knows I'm frail. I mean, I, I remember a situation where... I was working at Adcock Ingram's pharmaceutical company, and I was working in the training department, and my boss said to me, not my direct boss, her boss, said to me, hey, there's an opening in the sales department. I think you'd be a great medical rep. Why don't you apply for the position? And I said, well, you know, I don't have the qualifications. I don't know anything about that, you know. 
So can you help me? Can you coach me? She says, sure, let me, let me coach you. And then she's coaching me, but then, then she says this. Then she says, now, this is very important. This woman, she's a regional sales manager. She's going through a divorce. You really need to flirt with her and make her feel good about herself. The job will be yours. So I thought about this. I didn't not flirt with her because I was so upright. I didn't not flirt with her because I had no idea how to flirt. I mean, I've, like, how do you flirt a job interview? I have no idea. Hey, those are nice computers you have. I'm, I'm like, wait. There's still, there's still this matter of self-pity and preservation that Joseph is saying, okay, even though God has placed me here, even though God has given me the ability to interpret dreams, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my own energy and effort, and I'm going to remind this guy to tell Pharaoh, just remember the reason that you're out of prison, there's this cool guy here who knows how to inter interpret dreams, and I'll come out. And the, the reason I tell this story, and the reason this is important in there is because, is because sometimes within the context of our work, we need a re-reshaping. Because sometimes what God is doing, we kind of lose the plot a little. And he needs to remind us who is in charge and who is control, in, in control. And a couple of the saddest words in Scripture is what you hear next. After two whole years passed, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing in the Nile. So two whole years passed. By the time that Joseph gave the interpretation and said to the, to the baker, remind Pharaoh that there's a guy here who knows what he's doing. In total, commentators say that Joseph was either in, in, a, in a pit, in prison, or in part of his house between 10 to 12 years. But two whole years passed before Pharaoh had the dream. Man, the thing is, our career paths are way more indirect than we think they are. And advancement does not always happen in an upward trajectory. In fact, advancement is not always proof of God's blessing. If you think automatically that any promotion within the context of work is a blessing or a gift from God, I challenge you to go back to God and ask the question, is it? Because oftentimes, I've had men and women sit down with me and say, this is the opportunity that I've been given, but I don't know that it's right for me. I don't know that it's right for me in the context of my family. I don't know that it's right for me in the context of my community. I don't know that it's right for me, even though I would have more prestige, power, and money. I don't know that it's right for me. And one of the questions we need to be asking is, where is our confidence? Is our confidence in the baker, or is our confidence in the fact that God is going to rescue us from this when He is ready to do so? It's my experience that God acts suddenly, not quickly. It's my experience that God acts suddenly, not quickly. Now, we want God to act quickly. God, I've been in this job for a year. I should be out of this job. My experience is not that he acts quickly. My experience is that in a moment, things change for us. And this is what happened with Joseph. Genesis 41, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when they shaved him and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And finally, 
we see the humility that God is trying to kind of embed in Joseph. Finally, we see it taken root. And this humility is further displayed when he meets his brothers. So we have hidden competencies revealed. We have our, our confidence reoriented. And we also have our courage raised. He is brave now. I mean, I think 12 years would do that to you, but also the shaping of God. He's brave in the sense that he delivers bad news to the, uh, uh, to the guy who was killed. I mean, imagine how that went. But he's also very, very bold as he stands before the Pharaoh. Now, this is not a pitch to Shark Tank. Hi, sharks. You know, my name is Joseph, and this is what I think is going to happen over the next seven years. And who's with me? No, I'm out. You know what I mean? This is, this is not that. If Pharaoh doesn't like his perspective, he's at best back in prison. At worst, he's going to receive the same punishment that one of his pals received. He's bold. There's a sense in which this difficulty has given him courage. He says to Pharaoh, now therefore let Pharaoh. Now let me say this. Even those words, now let Pharaoh, could have killed him. You don't tell Pharaoh what to do. Now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Let him set him, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt. And I'm going to skip through for time, but basically he puts this plan together. And he says, what you need is you need an overseer. You need to create the ability to take a fifth of your crop and keep it aside and make sure that no one touches that because for seven years later, you're going to need that. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. At least he didn't say, I'm your man. It's me. But when we know that we've heard God, we are able to act with a humble confidence. Joseph knew that God was behind this. And when we hear God, we can act with a humble confidence. When we've heard God, we know that we can take initiative even though God is sovereign. Now, there's two schools of thoughts. The one is like God's going to do whatever God is going to do because God is sovereign. That's not resting on God's sovereignty. That's fatalism. But there's a sense in God is sovereign and he is inviting me to participate with him in the restoration of all things. In this situation, the restoration of Egypt, ultimately for the safety and security of Israel. In your work, God is inviting you for the restoration of what? We mentioned this last week. What is God restoring, creating, putting back in order because you are present Trusting in God's sovereignty is not the same as a fatalistic attitude. Even right now, as you're sitting here, God is giving you some ideas. Those are God-given ideas. Take them to God with humble courage and say, God, is this something I can bring to my bosses to actually say, this is what I think you should do? This is the reality. We have the wisest person we have access to the wisest person, and we don't access him in what we spend most of our lives in, in terms of our work. And so we pray, and we read, and we come to community, but in the context of your work, where have you sat down in a decision and said, God, what do I do in this moment? What do I do with this child in my class? What do I do with this contract? How do I do this? 
I would challenge you that when you do that and God responds, there will grow within you a deep, humble confidence to be able to stand boldly and know that this is what God has called you to do. Band, you can come up. God has placed you in a specific purpose to accomplish His purpose. Sorry, in a specific place to accomplish His purpose. When Joseph stands before his brothers, once his brothers are there, and I don't have time to go into all of that, that it's powerful. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? In other words, it's not my role to judge what you've done. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The same brothers that sold him out. We see a reshaped Joseph that was able to accomplish his ultimate purpose. And you look at this and you say, I mean, Nick, I know, this is Joseph and this is Moses. I mean, these are, like, these are heroes of the faith. Uh, but the reality is, is that we are also, we may not be these huge, big road signs, but every one of us is a little road sign to the faithfulness of God. And every one of us, when we act in this way, are able to point people just like the way Joseph did. It is not me that can interpret dreams. It is God that is able to do it. Um, there is, there is a, a connection. I remember Terry Virgo said, God is not impressed with your gift. He's the one who gave it to you, right? <laughs> so you can't impress God with it. He's the one who gave it to you. But equally, um, and... and, and Terry's amazing at this. He's also said, don't say it's God. Say it's with God. So when, 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 when something happens and what you try and do is you try and push away this idea of praise. Don't say, oh, uh, that was just God. No, say, that was God in me. That, there's a humble courage and confidence that comes with that. When we actually say, God gave me this gift, and I was able to use it to bring restoration, to bring order out of chaos, to bring kindness in a world that needs kindness. When we do something well, we have people's ear. And so one of the things that I'm challenging us to do in the context of our work is let's ask God for the ability to do what we do well because then we get the ear of someone that is in that place. Finally, what is he shaping us into? I would say this. Paul says that he's in labor and childbirth until Christ is formed in us. We look at this, and last week I spoke about this. God is creating within us the ability to creatively serve people around us. That's what he did with a baker. He's creating within us and shaping us a humble boldness to be able to stand within the context of our, of our world and say, God has given me this gift for the restoration of this situation. And lastly, love, motivated by love. We are those that have been called to creative service, to humble boldness and motivated by love. The question we should be asking is, God, what are you doing in me in this difficult time. God, how does this and what is happening to me help to bring you glory? Now, Joseph was a type. 
types, shadows are things that the Bible uses to be able to illustrate something of the nature of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, God uses people in situations to be able to prepare them for the coming of the one that will bring ultimate rescue, the coming of the one that will bring ultimate order, the coming of the one that will bring ultimate love. And we know that Jesus is a type of, or Joseph is a type of Jesus, because both of them were loved by their father. Both of them were sent by their father. Both of them were sold for silver. Both of them were rejected and condemned to die. Both of them resisted temptation. Both were falsely accused. Both were not recognized by their own people. Both stood at the right hand of a king offering rescue. But only Jesus was envied and hated without cause. There's plenty of cause to hate Joseph. Only Jesus rescues us from the famine of our own souls. Only Jesus brings a rescue that is eternal because we know the Jewish nation needed to be rescued again and again and again. Only Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father, leading us and restoring. And only Jesus will return to claim what is His so that when He returns, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's invitation for us this morning is as he's reshaping us by the grace of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's inviting us to be a company of flawed rescuers or as Henry Nouwen puts it, wounded healers. God is at work in you. God is at work through you. God is at work in your work. Do you recognize it? Let's pray. Jesus, we are here because of you. We are here because of your sacrifice. We are here because of your humble courage. We are here because everything you did is motivated by love. God, as we just rest in the reality of the finished work of Jesus, I ask you to stir in us the fact that each one of us has been called in each area of our vocation to say, is it not God who? I pray that you'd help us to answer that question. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.